there have been a number of talks that have preceded this. Uh, if any of you have been here through some of them, you're probably tired of hearing me say that, but I feel I have to for those who are people who are new. Uh, it's all on the same theme, and what I'm attempting to do is to build on what has gone before. Obviously, I think this is, I don't know, six, seven, eighth, something like talk. Uh, so some of it is intentionally repeated to maintain some continuity. If you've just come for the first time, uh, I hope you can make sense out of it. Um, of those of you who are here for the first time, how, how many of you are really and truly new, not a humble new to meditation? Okay. Have you ever uh, done any mindfulness of breathing? No. And yourself? No? Okay. You've never done any actual meditation yet? Okay. Okay, let's see what happens. I like to go over the title each time, um, adding slightly different nuances uh, to it because everything is really in the title. Self-knowing. It's a verb. It's something that ha happens in the active present. It's I am knowing. I am learning about myself. not. I knew, or I found out, or I learned that about myself. By the way, it, you're free to take notes. I would suggest you not. But then if you want to, it's okay with me. Uh, because those of you who have been here, if you recall, I said there was homework. Uh, practice listening. Uh, uh, no tests, don't worry. Uh, practice it now. That is, the way to listen to a Dharma talk and this is the only reason I suggest no notes, but if you want to, it's, I won't be offended or anything. Um, it's not really about the accumulation of information. You can get what I'm saying and better in books and tapes, videos, audios. It's endless now. Uh, it's not about accumulating information so much as allowing uh, these, of course, are words, their ideas, their notions, thoughts. Allow them to affect you and, and see if you can at least temporarily minimize or suspend the tendency to get into I agree, I don't agree, that's silly, that's foolish. It may be, but uh, save that for after. You don't have to uh, just keep coming back to, to just listening, to be able to just listen. See if you can do that. You may find that it's not such an easy art to develop, <coughs> that as you listen to how you listen, you'll find that the mind is quite busy uh, with things are said that stimulate your own ideas, agree, disagree, or, and you're off and running, and then maybe five sentences later you're back. So see if you can practice listening to the talk. At the end of the talk, you'll all have more of a chance to do some talking, and then I'll have to practice listening, and s let's see if I can do it. Okay? That's the only reason, but if you feel you want to take notes, fine. Uh, Self-knowing. So it takes place in the active present. It's not the accumulation of insights about myself uh, that you accumulate not only up here, but in a notebook, for example. It's not 
um, adding another chapter to the story of me and my life, starring me. It isn't. Uh, that is, uh, the archives are chock full. There's no room for anything more. But it keeps expanding. It's one of these magic rooms. The more we experience, the more chapters are added on. Somehow uh, the room expands and makes, and there's room for more chapters to it. It's more uh, being actively present in this moment and aware of what's, what is happening. Um, most of us have had a lot more experience looking outside without. Many of us are quite good at it, whether it's at other people or the environment or perhaps you love nature. Uh, any, you're a scientist in the laboratory. Uh, and even those of us who are more introverted, more psychological, uh, they're more thinking about things, reading books and thinking about what's going on inside of us. Uh, dharma, which one meaning of Dharma, which is, uh, I prefer to Buddhism as a, as a word, um, one of the meanings has to do with uh, natural truth. It's one way to look at it. So what's unfolding are certain truths. But the Buddhist teaching is, uh, is nothing if it, if it isn't ha doesn't have to do with inward looking. So for many of us, it's a rather new skill, a rather new emphasis to look within. Uh, in principle, it's still looking. It's listening. It's attending. Uh, and we have strong energies and interest in what's going on outside of us, highly developed. But without looking within, there's no Dharma, there's no Buddha's teaching. It just, it would be nothing. Because the lawfulness that we're looking at uh, has to do with this lawfulness of what goes on inside of us that produces so much suffering for all of us. What is that? In some ways, it's no different than what scientists are doing magnificently, charting external lawfulness. Uh, unlocking the secrets of the universe uh, to a staggering degree. Uh, we tend to have an evolutionary uh, point of view, so we think that uh, somehow we're getting better and better all the time, and uh, certainly technologically it's probably, of course, true. But when you look inwardly, if you read some of the ancients, the depth uh, is staggering of what they saw and uh, the practices that they left for us. They don't have to apologize. So in one sense, it hasn't gotten better and better, not at all. Um, so there have always been, as far as we know, human beings who've wanted to, in a sense, be psychonauts, travel inside. I remember a number of years ago, there was a cover of either Newsweek or Time, which said the last frontier, and it had someone in diving gear going, the ocean, the last frontier. And that means, you know, what it sounds like. People are exploring the ocean. There's so much we don't know about the ocean. Now we have a technology that enables us to do it. But it struck me as uh, simply not true. That uh, there's another frontier. We don't have to compete with the ocean. And that's, there's this vast, infinite universe that's inside each one of us. Okay. Um, the energy that's gone into the mastery 
if you want to learn something, you have to pay attention, anything, don't you? You have to get to know it, a realm, a person. You have to spend time with them. You have to uh, seriously be, pay attention, be sensitive. Uh, it may take time as you uh, familiarize yourself with a, a certain realm or whatever it is you're trying to learn. Uh, it's similar with this. Uh, the other evening, and one evening, I saw two documentaries. So those of you who are afraid that if you become serious meditators, you can't watch TV anymore, it's not true. <laughs> it's okay. I give you permission, but, I, but I'm not, a, not the Pope, so there is no Pope in Buddhism. So. Um, one was an aircraft carrier an in-depth study of an aircraft carrier, I don't know if any of you have seen it, uh, that is off, uh, that, that was uh, the home for these uh, uh, fighter planes that were going to Afghanistan recently. And it was an amazing world that was disclosed. For the moment, if you could suspend any pacifist, anti-war, different political views, just look at it as a human phenomenon. The planes themselves, millions of dollars. The training of pilots, who can do it? Extraordinary skills needed, extraordinary training. Uh, the uh, invention of planes that can do what these planes do. The, the uh, aircraft carrier itself has 5,000 people, has to feed 5,000 people every day and sleep. Uh, high tech. Extraordinary machinery, very delicate, needs to be equipped. Things breaking down, have to be repaired. Planes have to take off, not so much space. They've had to invent catapults to shoot them out there. Uh, they're refueled in the middle of the air by other planes that just carry fuel. If anything happens, they, the planes, they, they're, they're ejected. It goes on and on, but in just, I can't do it justice. Obviously, untold hours an application of uh, brilliance, human brilliance, uh, of a scientific, technological, and human sort to put together a floating city like this that works. And when it breaks down, they're ready for it to break down. They know it will. Just think of that. And then I also saw part of one, I didn't see the whole thing, of uh, what it takes, uh, the space shuttle endeavor. The amount, again, of thousands, I think something like 25,000 highly intelligent people. Uh, energy, commitment, money. You get, my, you get what I'm getting at. Uh, if we put a fraction of that in trying to understand ourselves, we might have a livable planet because the problem isn't terrorists. Please, I'm speaking from a level, don't, don't jump me yet. It isn't uh, global warming. Of course it is. It isn't nuclear, nuclear proliferation. It is at one level, but th those aren't, the, that's not the source of it. The source is the human mind. If you, if you push it back further and further, all this comes out of the human heart. That's where it's, it originates. And all the peace conferences and disarmament and all the concessions and agreements, we can see that they don't really accomplish very much. Uh, and then the question becomes, is it such that maybe we're just incapable of learning, of really and truly changing? Is it maybe just a small number in every generation who are able to 
radically transform themselves and the rest of us just have to bludgeon each other into being toothless and eyeless, blind, uh, arguing and fighting and me, you? Uh, or is it hopeful? You get an evolutionary point of view, which is somehow this is, this is more new age. Hope it's true. I don't see evidence for it, but maybe, be nice, that somehow the human race has been blind for 5,000 or more, 10,000 of years, who knows how long. And now the next stage in evolution is mind, where we, uh, consciousness, that, that challenge, and of course that's what this is all about. I hope so, but one thing we see, we have not been capable of learning very much. We go from one generation to another, killing each other off, war after war after war after war. Constantly talking about peace, constantly making war. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a utopian, I'm not suggesting that our practice is going to save everything, but it does seem clear that a lack of understanding of ourselves, starting with smaller units, forget about war. We're all talking about disarmament of one sort or another. How about inner disarmament? Have you disarmed yourself? Are you capable of hurting people? Not necessarily with a gun or a knife. With words, they can be very painful, or look, or just the way you behave. We haven't learned in just very small units, whether they're families or work situations, we haven't learned how to live together in peace. Uh, perhaps we should start there. Self-knowing is aimed at exactly that problem. What it's trying to do is suggest that uh, this is not a luxury item, that it seems to be an essential aspect of being alive uh, to get to know yourself, to understand your own mind, your own heart, why you do what you do, why you act the way you do, why relationships are so difficult for all of us. There seem to be some people who can live harmoniously. When you look closely, often they've worked very hard to no longer be a danger to the rest of us. They've become harmless. Ahimsa is a term that's sometimes used. And so um, this is the realm that self-knowledge is aimed at. Each one of us must do it for ourselves. When people, beginners often ask, well, isn't this a very self-indulgent practice? self-preoccupied, just sitting there. And it can be. That would be a misuse of it. But if you do it properly, it's the, it might be one of, or perhaps the greatest gift, social contribution you could make. If you can add a sane human being to the world, that'd be kind of nice. Somebody who has some kindness, some understanding, some inner strength. We're concerned with outer wealth tremendously. We're concerned with outer health, the body. We're concerned with outer everything. Inner wealth, outer wealth comes and goes. You can see that. Inner wealth is what certainly the Buddha is talking about and all the great ancient teachings of the yogis. But that's what they're talking about. Inner wealth, though, is not, it's not something you can display on a, on a, on a counter. Uh, you can't display your wares and point to it. It has no shape, weight, color. But because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real. Uh, and so uh, the, the, what this is about, it's an encouragement to start moving within, to start taking a look 
at your inner world to really come to understand that. Now, it's not saying that the outer world is irrelevant or an illusion and just forget about it. That would be the other extreme. It wouldn't work either. In fact, finally, there's just one reality. There's just one world, inner and outer, are just concepts. But we've used the concept to separate ourselves from what we've called outer at the expense of inner, from the inner, uh, highly developing what we call outer, our personality, our physical concerns, our cities, hygiene, endless. And so in a simple, humble way, that's what this practice is about, because this is low-tech. You don't need anything, really. All you need is the interest. Now, one of my teachers, and I mentioned this, I think, in the one of the early talks, a man named Manindra in India said, he used to ask students often, why, you, why do you want to study Vipassana? And it would not be unusual, we would say something I said, uh, to get to know myself better. And he said, oh, fine. Just sit down and take a look. And that is what it is, but in other words, it's true. What you, you're, you're sitting down, it's a technology in a sense, We've created a form where you have nothing else to do but to be with yourself. And why do we do it in a group a lot? Because apparently it's hard to do alone. We don't want to do that. We believe in self-knowledge and self-knowing, but there aren't long lines of people queuing up to do it. If there were, the world I don't think would look this way. So uh, we're in a group to give each other support until you don't need it to encourage ourselves to do something that apparently is difficult for us human beings. To, to look at what's in here. It might be that we're even more afraid of what's inside us than the outside world. And we hear teachings that say, all the problems come from within. It's all just one problem, the attachment to everything as me or mine. That's the Buddhist point of view. We'll get to that in a moment. The Buddha was once asked to give, a, uh, or let's, a very concise teaching. What, what is this all about? And paraphrasing it just slightly, it would be something like attach to nothing, don't attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. That's what we call, uh, that's what makes life go round. We mainly do, are doing that. We are building up this sense of me and mine. We kill each other over it incredible uh, loyalties to notions that we've made up about ourselves. I've wa I was watching the soccer. You see, I do watch the news. I would have no material if I didn't watch TV. Uh, the incredible, the Koreans who uh, won a match and the Americans who won a match, kissing their flag. Uh, you would think uh, paradise, uh, just ecstasy. Of course, I don't know if there are other substances helping it along. <laughs> but uh, it's just a bunch of young men running back and forth with a round ball and a net kicking it back in and out. Uh, but it stands for something. We'll, we'll get to that. It represents something that they're identified with. If America wins, we win. Show the world that we're blah, blah. We're not wimps in soccer. We want to, what, be the best in everything. Uh, and Koreans, the same thing, and on and on and on. It's not about soccer. You know, let everyone have a good time. 
so self-knowing. So knowing is an active thing. Only you can do it, and you can only do it here and now. It keeps being like that. That means you have, there has to be an interest and a willingness to be sensitive to your life as you live it out. We humans have that rare ability. As we live out our life, we don't have our forever, as we live out our life, we're able at the same time, si simultaneously, to be conscious of our experience as we live it out. We're kind of doing it anyway, but not too effectively or efficiently. What, what the Buddhas came along and said, we're all, we all know what mindfulness, we're doing it. To be alive, you have to attend. The Buddha took that one obvious human quality and uh, showed the, Im the incredible significance of it. Also, this famous present moment, what, was, what is demonstrated in all the sutras, all the teachings of the Buddha, is the immense significance of the present moment. For one reason, because there ain't nothing else. There's just the present moment, but we're not living as if that's so. Okay, and then self-knowing. Well, who is it that knows what and about who? I thought there, there is no self in Buddhism. There is a self, but what is it, partially a self? or It's a self, but it's not substantial. But we have to use language. It has to point to, and you, we each have to do that. But it's about that which is, goes under the name as me, we have, when we use language, or the self. But of course, it's not a word. And then, quiet passion. If you don't get interested in really trying to understand yourself, and I would say, based on having listened to and observed in my own life, uh, although it's not easy, once it gets going, uh, it can be incredibly fulfilling, full of joy, full of love, uh, intrinsically so worthwhile that you don't need anyone like me telling you that it's good for you. You don't need a parent figure telling you that it's good for you. Do it. Uh, but that you have to you have to set the mo set things in motion so you begin to see that you have and only you have the capacity to straighten out your life. If you think your life is messed up, well, change it. Well, how do you do that? I've been trying. Well, I would say that one of the, the, the main revolutionary ideas that the Buddha is giving us is a simple one. It's a different way <clears throat> excuse me, to relate to the same experience that everyone else is having. All human beings, we're all having the same experience. We love, we hate, we feel discouraged, we feel optimistic, etc. We all age, we all grow ill, we die. It's a different relationship to your experience that the Buddha is talking about. It's a radically different one. It's one that most of us wouldn't do on our own. It doesn't occur to us. So self-knowing is beginning to, uh, instead of always grasping or pushing away, which is our predominant reaction to life. If we like it, we want it. If we don't like it, we push it away. Is it possible to just be aware as we live out our life, to really come to, to fully experience what's happening to us. This would be, I think many of you know what I'm getting at. For the new people, it may seem, what is he talking about? But if you take it on as a practice, I think it'll be obvious to you. Uh, the passion 
is what that word means. It means a, a keen interest, however you phrase it, in being free, in being sane, uh, in not suffering so much, in flowering, in um, enabling your full human potential to flower. Uh, and it turns out you're the one who can do it or not do it. Sorry, but that's the Buddha saying each one of us is responsible for our own happiness. When you, some people hear that, it's like, whoa. I think it's good news. It feels to me like fresh air. If we got us into this mess ourselves, hmm, maybe we can learn our way out of it. I don't think you get out of it by will. There's something else much more subtle, understanding. But passion, quiet passion also means, uh, I'm not sure we'll get to it tonight, maybe a bit. And opening up into a, a dimension of life that is alien to us. And that dimension, you could call it stillness, or silence, or emptiness. When that word is used, or any of the words I just suggested are used, typically we think we know what's meant by it, because we know those dictionary there really aren't good words for it. If you stillness, oh, I know what that means. You know, the refrigerator stops rumbling. You know, the TV is shut off finally. Uh, emptiness, okay. I, these Buddhists are always talking. Apparently, they say it's the crown jewel. I don't see what all the fuss is. It's just empty. What does not? What do they make such a fuss out of nothing? Stillness, yeah. You go to take a rest, take a nap. But what? What's the big deal? Because we don't really have words that uh, it's about something that's inconceivable because the words are keeping us from tasting what I'm talking about. And so the, the language, any language, is rather handicapped. It can't take you there. It can point you in that direction. Probably the most intentionally designed language, maybe the only one, for spiritual work is Sanskrit. It's intentionally designed uh, to help us do things like this. But even so, uh, truth or is inconceivable. In other words, it, you can't conceive of it. We can hint at it with language. It's a, a little bit like this. Um, in the New York Times this week, so you can see, you can also read the newspaper if you keep meditating. The new folks who are worried about, I don't know, you have to just get a loincloth or... <laughs> Uh, there's a, an interesting story, it was very touching, of the Maasai, a tribe in Africa. And one of their uh, members of the tribe uh, came to the United States as a medical student at Stanford. He happened to be in New York City when 9-11 happened and was deeply, deeply affected by it. And he going, going back to, went back to Africa to his tribe uh, for the summer, he'll come back. He's going to go to medical school, or he's in medical school, I'm not sure. And he was trying to explain to everyone what happened, 9-11. And they were really trying to understand that he did it. And he found that he, it was almost impossible to help them understand the height of the building. Because for them, this is a tribe that is, they don't have technology at all. They're living much as people lived thousands of years ago. What's tall is a giraffe. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's like, or certain trees that giraffes eat from. But 
buildings like the World Trade Center were inconceivable. And they just couldn't grasp it, but they grasped that a lot of people died. And they, and they actually, this is the touching part, they donated, I don't know, 18 cows to the survivors, because uh, that's very sacred in their culture. Okay, so they, uh, Tall is a giraffe in that culture. We don't really know much about what silence is because we're incredibly busy running, assembling, chop, breaking things down, putting up new things, thinking, analyzing, uh, jumping up and down, dancing, singing. Uh, just look around. It's just, uh, it's a terrific. It's very dynamic. So we don't know a whole lot about if that stops for a while. Uh, we don't know that there is, and you'll have to take this on faith until you taste it for yourself. I hope you do that there's another dimension of living. It's as real as the one that we're in right now, called silence. And it's extraordinary. Uh, and the only way you can really know what it is, probably those natives would have to come uh, and take a look at the Empire State Building or something to realize that human beings can build a building that high. And we have to, using the meditative techniques, allow the mind to come to a halt and become so still and so spacious, and it can only do so when our preoccupations go into abeyance. We're given a breather. Okay. Um, we were talking about relationship and self-knowing last week, and I'd like to build on that a bit. When <coughs> Munindraji says, if you want to get to know yourself, just sit down and take a look. That's correct, but it's not the whole story. Uh, even the most zealous of us spend most of our life off the cushion. So most of our life, and particularly as lay people, um, if the only time you can learn something about yourself is when you sit or on retreat, uh, I think it's going to be uh, pretty limited. Uh, in fact, the practice goes well beyond that. And so relationship, if you recall, those of you who are here, uh, relationship was put forward in the following way, to see relationship as a mirror. That is, relationship in general. That is, if you look at nature, and if you notice your reaction to nature, that's your relationship. You'll discover it, not as an ideal or as an idea. You can feel what your connection is to nature, maybe no connection. Maybe you feel uncomfortable. Let's get back to the city. It's cute, you know, birds and waves, and you know, it's nice, but we've had enough. It's a good movie playing, you know, let's. And someone else just can't be riveted to just to nature. And everything's like that. Um, so much is in the mind, and if you pay attention to its reactions throughout the day, that's, those are the materials of self-knowledge. What do you learn from? You learn from the materials that seem to be generated from within. Look, one day we say, life is great. I love being alive. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be alive. The next day we can't get out of bed. And we're just despondent, depressed, and see everything as awful. Scientifically, probably the world has not changed at all. So what has changed? Our minds. And so... Uh, the mind is incredibly powerful, very, very powerful. 
it's running our life. And if it's unexamined and not understood, it's uh, like having a powerful airplane with a pilot who doesn't fully know what to do with it. And it's no wonder that it's dangerous, that we're dangerous to each other. Okay. Um, aware, relationship is a mirror. Now I'm going to relationship between people, because I think that's what interests us most, but it's the same principle. When we're in the presence of another, we have a reaction. That reaction is mirror-like. Uh, it has the potential for being a mirror, to be more accurate. Because everyone's having reactions. It, you don't have to be a, a big meditator to have reactions to what's happening to you. Uh, and then if you hear, well, just pay attention to your reactions, okay, so then you do. But if the quality of your attention is such that there's no steadiness to it, and that it's full of bias, full of ideals and beliefs and views and opinions that you're, uh, in a sense, evaluating and assessing what your reaction is from the old mind, from, from the mind that has uh, been assembled through time, from your particular life experience, your conditioning. Each one of us has different conditioning. That wouldn't be a very good mirror because a lot of it is just projecting what's in the mind, telling you about it, and that's not what's meant. So in order for relationship to be a mirror, the mind has to be purified, and the image of mirror, remember, it's just a metaphor, uh, it's what the ancients called dusting the mirror, cleaning the mirror. Uh, awareness itself can come to see th through, that's what awareness does. It can come to see biases, it can come to see um, ideals, notions, beliefs, ways that in a sense come between, not ways, but mind states that come between us and our experience. And we think we're seeing something factual when really what we're seeing is what the mind is yielding to us, which we then uh, feel it's absolute truth rather than an interpretation of what's happening. It's just one interpretation of what's happening. Okay, but with practice, uh, i sorry for the new people, we use breathing and all kinds of other techniques to help the mind become calm, clear, so that the mind is free, even if it's temporary. It, it is temporary to begin with, maybe not very long. The mind, a still mind, is a clear mind, like a still pool. And so maybe it's just a little bit to begin with. Suddenly we have a reaction to a person. And it shows us as the mind, when the mind is clear. It's like, let's say you have an outer mirror. You look at it in the morning. And you may want to look a certain way, but the mirror doesn't lie. If you really look at it, it shows you exactly how you are. That's its value. Or why we don't want to look at it. But it's like that. If you're willing to really take a look, it's giving you a precise sense of your features, uh, you know, all of that. Now, what relationship can do, once we allow it to, and we, that takes some, some uh, practice and training, it can also begin to show you how you actually live, what you actually feel, what you actually intend, what your actual motive, motives are. In other words, it reveals truth. 
rather than a bunch of notions that we take to be who we are and what we're doing. And that can be quite painful. You have to have a strong stomach sometimes to pay attention to what, if you, if you pay attention to what is brought up, uh, and if you're willing to learn from it. So a number of things are asked of us. The mind has to be steady. Just like a mirror, if the mirror were wobbly and all over the place, it wouldn't be of much use. The mind has to be steady. It has to be clear. When it's steady and clear, it's not really looking out here. Uh, as something happens, a person says something or does something, uh, you have a reaction of anger, of love, of uh, disapproval. You can hear what you're saying. Um, in, with right speech, that's one of our kinds of training, is to pay attention to how we use speech. Uh, speech is very, very powerful. Uh, how we use it and misuse it in terms of not only honesty but cruelty. Uh, just really hearing how we use language. And one of my teachers in Thailand, uh, I asked for some hints as to how to help that come along. And he said, well, actually, the thing that will help you most of all is when your mind gets quiet, when it becomes still. Because when the mind gets still, it's like hearing a false note in music if you're attuned to it. Because when you get still and you say something and it's a bunch of baloney, you're the first one to know. Maybe no one else knows you're lying. Oh, good. No one, no one will know. that. One. But you know. And you know when you're off and you begin to see your actual motivation. Your actual motivation. Uh, you begin to see fears. You begin to see quite a clash between images of what you have of yourself and the actuality. And those images uh, are often uh, representations of ourselves in rather flattering ways. Sometimes not. But the mirror just shows you from moment to moment exactly what's happening. It's your real, actual life being lived out in real time. It's not an idea about it. It's in the moment seeing it. I'll give you an example from my, this was way before meditation. I wish I had known meditation. It wouldn't have been so painful. When I was 20 years old, I was in the army. And I had had a typical, uh, you know, growing up in New York City, very athletic, loved sports, uh, play soldier, cowboys and Indians. Uh, fighting, all those things. In Brooklyn, it was just natural. I was not anything special, uh, rolling on the ground, um, particularly enjoyed athletics. Came to the, but I uh, had a picture of Gandhi over my bed. Big deal. It's not Gandhi's fault. <laughs> Within three weeks, I was seeing how much I loved the guns. I saw how I won a few medals, and I immediately I felt terrific, and I particularly liked the machine gun gave me a feeling of incredible power. Then running with a full pack for miles, I could do it. We got in great shape. And all of my childhood John Wayne type things, they were alive and well. And my ideology of who I was was cute, but it was very superficial. It was just completely smashed. And during maneuvers, this was airborne maneuvers, I, I saw someone die. I saw someone lose an eye. Uh, people went psychotic. They really did. It's not publicized. And um, my notion of myself and what 
was being shown right in my face were a complete contradiction. It was very, very depressing. A very, I was very disappointed in myself. I actually could have been a decent soldier. I liked it. My solution, I don't want to go into this too much, was to go into the medical corps and to refuse to bear arms. So I could be in the army, do my two years, and uh, not kill anyone. But that didn't take what was inside of me away. It's just that I was like protecting myself from what was inside myself. Okay. Meditation goes much deeper than that. Uh, it's an attempt to really go to the root of what our being is, not as any romantic, ideological, none of that. It's just showing you what's there. It's an inner mirror. Um, There's much more to be said about this, but I'd like to leave you tonight, and next time perhaps we'll go into it more deeply. If you start paying attention as to what happens in relationship uh, with your partners, in marriages, with your children, with your employers, with teachers, at work, we're in relationship. Much of life is in relationship. Self-knowledge, self-knowing, uh, isn't limited to the cushion, and it's a very dynamic and alive thing. It isn't static, like, oh, you get a picture of me as, oh, I'm an, and then some adjective. It's f alive. As you're living, you're coming to see certain things, and if you're aware of your reactions, your reactions start losing their power. And so your actions don't flow from thinking. All of these come out of conditioned ideas and notions. More and more, let's put it as a question, is it possible for verbal and physical action to come from a place that's unconditioned, that is not conditioned? The answer of, the, of Buddha Dharma is definitely. How do you get to that place? You see, uh, when we use relationship as a mirror, one, what that does is it reveals the ways of the self. If you recall what I said earlier, that the Buddha's teaching is about uh, not attaching to anything whatsoever as me or mine. Put in more familiar language, the real problem is ego for all of us. It's this self-referential tendency we have that every, almost everything, it, it isn't everything or we'd be cr even crazier. There are gaps when we're not so self-centered. It's as if the whole world exists just about me. Listen to your mind. See if I'm exaggerating. It's extraordinary how preoccupied the mind is with itself. Now, we've become rather polished in presenting ourselves not just as egomaniacs. Particularly in Cambridge, we're very sophisticated. <laughs> Everyone's been in therapy, workshops, meditation. Uh, but if you listen to your mind, it's quite honest. It's just happening. Okay, so... How do you get to this famous emptiness and stillness? Well, of course, some of that can happen in sitting, particularly extended sitting, although it's not just a matter of time, but to begin with, time seems to be a factor. Later on, it really isn't. Um, how can the mind get to be that still? Uh, where, you, if you're, let's say you're in a relationship with someone, you know them for many years, you have an image of them your partner, your husband, your wife, your child, in a certain way you're not seeing them accurately. 
You're seeing them through the accumulated experiences you've had with them. Oh, yeah. It's not that you know that that's what's going on. When you go home tonight, usually in, in relationships, one person meditates, another doesn't. It's very, very common. Have you noticed that? I have noticed it. Sometimes it's both. It's not fatal. Some of the best relationships are one does and one doesn't. Some of the worst, both do it. <laughs> They're on to each other day and night, you know, just drive each other crazy. Go home and take a look at your other as if for the first time. You might find it difficult, but notice how there's a kind of obstinate familiarity that you're not aware of. It's like a, a filter, uh, a veil between you and the other person. Or it's a certain type. Oh, a policeman, fireman. Well, now all firemen are good. Policemen are a little better, too. Before that, we had other filters that, you know, policemen, firemen, we don't even notice them. Now, it's, it's different. Well, all along, they always were just people doing an extraordinary thing. Nothing's changed. So we got shattered. Our, our uh, chronic way of seeing got shaken up a bit, 9-11. But meditation's a way of doing that intentionally and gently, for the most part. Not always gentle. Sometimes cherished ideas and images of yourself don't stand the test. If you're willing to, if you have, if you, it takes some courage, I think, and interest to allow a relationship to liberate you. In a certain sense, the world exists from a Dharma point of view. The world exists in order to set us free. Now, that may sound, obviously, we have jobs and things to do, and there are many sources of happiness in life. Do them. Learn how to be happy in the most ordinary sense. Forget about meditation. But there's, the world can set us free if we can relate to the world in a certain way that, in a certain sense, sense it is the foremost teacher. We're both the, uh, we're the teacher and the student. We're kind of learning as we go. It's, life is really the great teacher. If you're willing to pay attention, the lessons are ongoing. And so as you begin to see all of your reactions, which come out of ego, see if it's so, so many of them. It's all about me. I did, I didn't do, I will do, I might do, I used to be, I will be. Endless. Okay. As you start watching that, uh, observation takes the power out of it, starts falling away. Well then, what's there when that falls away? Uh, is it like having a prefrontal lobotomy? I mean, is it worthwhile to be that which, when all that's not there? Well, in Dharma circles, it's sometimes, whether it can be called, the phrase I like, it's just language, is true nature or original nature or essence. In other words, it's the mind, the heart, uh, citta, uh, with all of the coloration gone. It's just pure, mm, pure isness. And that's where the practice takes you to. Uh, so then in the process of being aware of selfing, that is, uh, all day long in relationship, we're producing notions of ourself. But if you can meet them with awareness, they start falling away. Uh, not only are you then opened up to a new realm, a realm of silence, which you, you don't get shortchanged, but you'll have to find out for yourself. But also you live from that place more and more. 
and it's a wonderful place to live from because it's fresh. You use knowledge when you need it. It's appropriate. One of the meanings of art is to put things in their right place. Vipassana is the art of living. It's often defined that way. I like that. I think it is. So it's being able to put things in their right place. Right now, we worship thought. We give it total authority. We worship our reactions. We're paying attention mainly to what produced those reactions. What is being suggested this evening is uh, the reactions are at least as important as that which produced it. Because as you start becoming sensitive to your reactions, they start becoming weaker, fall away, and take you to a place where a different quality of action is possible. Um, I'm going to go a little bit beyond 8.30. This is one of my favorite teachings. It's, I hope it's not too misunderstood. It comes from Lin Chi, a very great Chinese uh, Chan master. I'm going to have to explain a few terms, but try to... Uh, okay. The master, that's Lin Chi. This is about Lin Chi. Lin Chi was one of the great Dharma teachers, in my opinion. The master ascended the hall, that means got up where all the meditators were in the hall, and said, here, in this lump of red flesh, there is a true person with no rank. This, this thing. This is this lump of red flesh. Okay. And what he's saying is, here, in this lump of red flesh, there is a true person. True person? With no rank. Uh, a lot of what is going on all day long is ranking. I'm better than this one, I'm weak, I'm smarter, I'm stupider, we're about the same. He's uh, younger, he's older, I'm, I'm as attractive as her any time. If I dressed up, I'd be just, if, you know, just, uh, so, and inside too. We're inside, we got a whole ranking thing, how I used to be, how I am, how I will be. We're endlessly becoming something better in our imagination. Keeps us going, I guess. Uh, so ranking is going on. The price we pay for it is... Uh, Anguish, a lot of anguish, endless ranking, whether you want to call it ambition, striving, comparing, it equals suffering. Now, it's not, you can be president of the United States or chairman of a corporation and be a true person of no rank. It's, it's inner. It has nothing to do with functioning. It has nothing to do with um, not taking responsibility for, let's say, if you have the responsibility to lead a lot of people or to guide some people or whatever your job is or function, it's the, the function's not, that's not where the suffering is. Is that we concoct a fake person, a status, a notion, a rank about who, we, who, who it is that's doing the function. Okay, so this old Lynchy, he's saying, here in this lump of red flesh, there is a true person with no rank. Constantly he goes in and out through the gates of your face. You know, through here, through here. In other words, the sense doors. This true person, of course, is in touch with the world. True person is empty. If there are any of you, you know, it would be like you guys, if, you, if Lynch, you were up here, he was pointing to you. If there are any of you who don't know this for a fact, that is, you don't know that there's a true person of no rank living inside you, then look, look. 
okay? I think that's what we've been saying all night. Start paying attention. Self-knowing. At that time, there was a monk who came forward and asked, quote, what is this person like, this true person with no rank? This person is, doesn't know the answer, and he asks a question like for information. The master, Lin Chi, got down from his chair, seized hold of the monk, and said, speak, speak. The monk was about to say something, whereupon the master let go of him, shoved him away, and said, this true person with no rank is just a, a shit stick. And then he, the master returned to his quarters. I have to explain that. In ancient China, <laughs> no, I do, I do. Uh, in ancient China, there was a certain stick that was used to clean your, uh, your bottom after you had a bowel movement. And so he's just saying, now it isn't a total insult because a shit stick is quite valuable, very useful. <laughs> really useful. For example, if we had a retreat here, and if I left and just left you on your own, all right, you might get annoyed, you might want your money back, but if there was no toilet paper, <laughs> big trouble. You'd be furious, helpless, hysterical. Where's the toilet paper? What about Larry? Who cares about Larry? Where's the toilet paper? <laughs> so, uh, in this sense, it's an ordinary person who's not examined their life, and has not become a true person of no rank. Uh, let me suggest, again, more homework. I've taken this on. Uh, this particular exchange has been my favorite for many, many years. And uh, it's, quite a, it's a practice for me. It's one practice that I have. It's become quite natural because I've done so much of it. Notice it's not, I'm going to become a true person of no rank. That would be another rank where you want to become what you've heard. That's what's excellent, is a person of no rank. I think I'll become that. Right, so you're in the same game. The, the ego's brilliant. You have to understand that. Much smarter than you <laughs> or me. It's absolute, whatever you want, it doesn't care. As long as it reigns supreme. You want to be a terrorist, you want to be a saint, it doesn't care. Just don't get rid of me. That's why it hates silence. Because no, the, there is no silence. The ego is the noisemaker. The reason we can't get into the silence because it's a very tiny door and ego can't fit. It's too fat. Okay. The practice could be, if, if you're drawn to it, it, it could, it's a lot of fun. You learn a lot about yourself. Is throughout the day, notice when you, how you make rank. Uh, not necessarily literally, uh, you know, with a scorecard, but you'll notice how uh, very often you're feeling a little bit down here relative to someone else, or a little bit up here relative to someone else, or in Cambridge we all like to be put on a show of being equal. You know, we're all, it's very egalitarian, fanatically egalitarian society. Uh, but inside it doesn't lie. If you pay attention you'll see that what you're really feeling, and uh, you may be surprised to find out how we're, this ranking thing is going on a lot. Well, that, all that is, it's another word for me, me and mine. It's worried. How is it doing? Am I okay? What am I, what's going to become of me? 
Okay. As you begin to see this ranking process going on and on, it starts to lose some of its power. It's not that you try to be a true person of no rank. If you can stop doing all this comparing, you'll find that all along you always were a true person of no rank. All of us. That's what we begin. That's, that's the true nature. In, uh, in Thai Buddhism, sometimes they call it as uh, returning to your true home. Our personality and our attempts to fix up the personality, uh, to patch it up, to make it uh, you know, a better person, uh, a better meditator, a kinder, that's all uh, an organism that's doomed. The personality can't be fully happy, but if you don't believe it, keep working on that level. And so as you come to see into it insightfully, the letting go starts happening, and you find yourself in a place that's already here. This silence that has been hinted at tonight is just below the threshold of all of this din of thoughts and images and plans and worries, all of that blah, 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 blah. If that gets quiet, the silence is not that far away. And it's accessible to all of us ordinary people. It's not reserved to special people who go way up, to, who have, you have to go to Tibet to find it or somewhere in the Himalayas, it, you can even find it in Cambridge or wherever you live. Because it's not in a place, it's in you. Okay. Uh, time for a break. We'll go more deeply into this next week and link into the idea of anatta, or not-self, which is very important in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, those of you who would like to leave, this is a good time to do that. personally enjoy dialogue, interacting. Anything we can talk over together? Please. I felt really confused by your... Uh, who was he calling the shit stick? Was himself? No. The, the guy who, who, who hesitated and wanted... Uh, asked for him to... asked for the master to answer him like, it's, like the answer is, is it, in information. So Lin Chi was calling him a shit. In other words, he's saying you're... I'll read it. The master got down from his chair, seized hold of the monk and said, speak, speak. The monk was about to say something, whereupon the master let go of him, shoved him away and said, this true person with no rank, what a shit stick. In other words, he's saying... Everyone's a person with no, a true person with no rank. That's our nature. But he's not behaving like he, he's not in touch with it. He's behaving like uh, not like that. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it sounds like it's an incredibly uncompassionate kind of attitude. Uh -oh. I don't get it. Uh, that's not fair. This is like almost 2,000 years ago. It's what's come down to us. He was uh, compassion. Uh, even the Dalai Lama talks about tough love. These are, okay, I have to explain this. You're quite right. There's something in Zen called Dharma combat. It's not cruel or mean. If it is, then the person is misusing their, their position. It's a form of play, of jostling with one another uh, to help break through the fixation that we have on ideas and concepts. That's all it is. I've had, I've, I've had teachers wipe the floor with me 
in this in this Dharma con back. They they one in particular. We had a very loving connection for five years. Uh, Krishnamurti did it with me often. I never for a moment felt what a cruel person he wasn't. It was so helpful that he just would play with me that way. He was willing to give me that attention and energy. If you're literal about it, it's not your fault. You have no context for it. It's, it has to be understood in, as a cultural event. Within that culture, Dharma combat is people who go there know that that's going to happen. They want a master who's clearer than them. And they want somebody who is going to challenge them. So it's done in good spirit. It's done uh, out of compassion, not out of cruelty at all. Does that? Well, I mean, it makes sense in an abstract way, but it's hard for me to imagine that I would gain something by That isn't your path, then. No. Okay, it's still going on, that, that style. But uh, it's good for some people. But, you know, if you're in it, I, I was in it for, for almost seven years, five years, very intensively, and here in Asia. Um, uh, it's, it's, you don't take it personally. You understand that this person is really trying to help you. And uh, it isn't, but it doesn't fit any new age model for sure. And it isn't how we teach here. Although, uh, it, sometimes I know, I, I hope I am, I'm quite direct with a person. That doesn't mean cruel. If, if you just want to be comforted, you're just going to be lulled, you know, lullaby and good night. Uh, that's what we're doing enough of anyway. It, uh, uh, again, one teaching was, well, what are all these teachings? What's the value of it? One master was challenged. He said, when the baby is crying in the middle of the night, you uh, rock it to sleep with, with a lullaby, you tell it stories. So that all these Dharma teachings, they're like stories for the baby who's hysterical and crying in the middle of the night. Because the real Dharma is in here. And verbal teachings, including what I'm saying tonight, and the highest teachings of the Buddha, even the Buddha says, this is not absolute truth, just words. When people kill each other over what it says in their text, oh, uh, it's a book. The words are pointing to something. That something is, it's not, it's not you know, it's, it's in you, it's in me. What he's saying is, in a sense, we're all shit sticks. It doesn't mean worthless, it means... We're very concerned with the ways of the world, and that's where we're preoccupied. That's where our energy is all caught up. And he's saying, you're a person of true, true rank, but you don't know it. Now, this kind of treatment is an attempt to help that person move clo more closely. It is not um, going to be well received in the United States, granted. Although it is done. There are Zen monasteries that are, that are like that. If Lin Chi were alive, uh, he, one of his main teachings were, Someone said, uh, what are you teaching, Lin Chi? And he said, um, I have no particular teaching. He said, oh, come on. People are coming from all over China uh, for your teaching. He says, okay, all I do is I look carefully at the person. I see what their prized possession is, and I snatch it away. <laughs> you know, for one person, it's their intelligence. Another person is how committed they are to practice. A third person is what a compassionate person they are. Fourth person, it's money. In other words, it's physical appearance. I say, well, what is it you're holding on to for dear life to? <laughs> uh, give them the benefit of the doubt. No, I understand that. Okay, good. Please. Yeah. An artist or an entrepreneur. I mean, this is all really interesting what you're saying, but you know, so much of what I know of the world is, you know, it, when you're an artist, 
you know, the most important thing is expressing yourself. You have a self to express. And that's one form of art. Yeah, and that's it's not the only artist. form of art. We have. You know, would you say that that artist is invalid in terms of the way you see it? No, it's not. Oh, oh no, no, no! It's not that that's worthless. But let me. Do you know anything about the lives of artists? You must know something about it. Are they famous for being happy, fulfilled, peaceful, kind, gentle, compassionate people? Writers, artists? Uh, of course not. Dostoevsky, Kafka. Madmen. But no, no, I say this because I love Dostoevsky. I love, I mean, I still, there was a time when I realized what was good about Dostoevsky for me was that he wrote about the derangement in human beings in such a magnificent way, so rich, so knowledgeable, so precise, that it helped me. But he himself had not gone beyond that. It helped me manage my own nuts, nuttiness. But he didn't know anything beyond that. Now, there is art, so-called traditional or classical art, or uh, sometimes it's called religious art, that comes from a place of emptiness. I'm not... Uh, creativity at whatever level is one thing. The quality of the life the person is living, that's another thing. It's up to you. For example, if you're an artist and you're miserable... and Look, one time I talked a little bit like this and a person nearly chopped my head off. He said, then most of the writers in the world and the, the painters in the world, in your terms, it's a little like what you're getting at. Right. I mean, like yeah. Picasso, um, at, and he, you know, he was a go-getter. He was an achiever. I mean, he was totally aware of rank, and he played, he played it, you know, all the was he Was he an enlightened person? What? He might have been a great artist, but was he an enlightened person? Well, he was an awful person. I mean, in terms so of what I So was he, was he a liberated person? Fine. If you want to be a great artist and you don't care if you do for the, then that's what he was. I'm not. I'm not. Everyone has to choose what they want. So look, one of the best teachers I had in Korea was illiterate, and he thought the world was flat. And we, he drove us crazy because we were all, you know, we tried. We explained it to him with our high school science, uh, and he was radiant. I mean, just a joy to be with. Just smiling. Just. So a wonderful human being, extraordinary. He couldn't even write his name. And finally, we couldn't get through to him. And finally, he gave up. And he said, okay, okay, okay. You, you know, you Americans, you're better educated, you're intelligent. I'm just a dumb old Korean peasant. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe the world is round, as you say. It, could, it made no sense. Why don't people fall off and all that stuff? So uh, and he said, so you know much more than I have. But has all that knowledge, you know, getting to the moon, all the things you created, has it made you happy? And it hasn't. So I'm not saying te technology is what it is. Have we paid a price for the brilliance of, of technology? I think that's what I was saying. We've poured the best minds and hearts and resources into the outer perfection. So we have great machines, clean bathrooms, wonderful transportation systems, and the human being can't live together. Uh, people who are wealthy are miserable. So uh, it's time to reevaluate that. You know, maybe the human race is a little bit off. Maybe we have to take a look at it. Maybe there's some, some correction is needed here. Now, I'm talking about in global terms, but really what I care about is all of you and me. Is your life off? Are you living in ways that are producing a lot of suffering for yourself? 
if you feel that, why practice Dharma unless it can help you to liberate yourself from what you need liberating from? Now, if you want to be a great artist and be miserable, that's your choice. It's okay. I mean, do you see what I'm getting at? Right, well, then the other choice to be an artist would be, you know, and to be enlightened would, would be, well, I probably won't be a successful artist, but I'll be enlightened, and I love art, so therefore... But it's not another career. Most, uh, most terrible artists or non-artists or non-creative people aren't enlightened either. <laughs> In fact, most people are not enlightened. So the point is, let's not make it all or nothing. Some of the, Picasso's not one of my favorites, but you know, there, there's great art in Rich's life. Uh, I don't need to know about, you know, uh, how tormented uh, Mozart was, or I don't need to know that. I loved Bach's music. Uh, I don't need to know all that. Uh, so I'm not making some pronunciamento, oh, those people must be eliminated. You know, it's not some kind of Nazi, uh, just uh, have them shot because they're, they're, they're going in the wrong direction. It's their choice, and in the process of produce something quite beautiful, beautiful cathedrals and so forth. But Dharma is about turning out beautiful people. Okay, this illiterate monk, who from our point of view was stupid, not stupid, but really uneducated, he didn't know anything. And yet we were the ones who traveled thousands of miles to learn from him. He didn't come here to learn what we know. He could care less. He was just having a ball, being alive. He really was an amazing human being, and he couldn't—he didn't couldn't count or add or, or write or anything like that. So, what do you want? Is the real question. How do you want to use your life? It's not against being good at what you do. You know, I know what you do, and you're good at it. Fine, but you also have a life in back of it. It's like it's an expression of it. And the, then the question is, you're here, so that implies that you care about the quality of your life as well, right? Not just being a good cook but you care about cooking your life, too. Right. Okay, so that's why you're here. Great. Now, if you say, you stomp out and say, I just want to be a great cook and turn out endless recipes. By the way, free commercial, if you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful vegetarian restaurant in Passim's. Uh, DD runs it. It's, not a, it's very well-priced. It's really good food. <laughs> I don't get a, a percentage. Uh, what I'm saying is, each person has to decide how to live. What, what do we want? Yeah. Do, you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. Okay. I can still read uh, um, uh, Dostoevsky and, uh, and amaze at the brilliance and the nuance of perception about you. He's just great at human suffering. And if you're suffering and you read it, it helps a lot. But it doesn't take you beyond it. Yeah. Please. Sure. Some of the, some of the greatest art, uh, we don't even know who did it. They weren't, you know, I had a, uh, my friend's father once was sick, and so we br uh, he brought him a, these paints with the numbers, you know, the number, color in the number, and he signed it. <laughs> you know, when I, when I saw it, I was like stunned. I felt like, wow, this uh, authorship, you know, this is, I did this. That goes pretty far, just, you know, green, purple, blue, red. Uh, okay, there's some great art, we don't know who did it. There's a Buddha in Sarnath, India, called the Sarnath Buddha. We have a very, oh, very faint uh, image of it on our logo. You know, it's, it's the face of a Buddha. If you saw the real thing, 
uh, I went in, it's in a museum and full of beautiful, you know, Buddhas and artwork. I never got past him. I stayed there for two hours. Whoever the artist was who did that uh, must have been in some place extraordinary. Th that's, that face was more alive than most of us who were watching it. You know, so-called human, you know, who are alive. So yes, great art can come from, it comes from where you are. You, everything we do, we put our signature on it. It's inescapable. So uh, now, here's what gets interesting sometimes. Well, the only reason I turn out good art is out of my neurosis. If I became sane, then I wouldn't be a writer anymore. I'd have nothing to say. You have to make a choice. I don't know if that's true. I mean, there could be art that comes from a very different, I know there is, of all forms, that comes from a, a different place altogether. But supposing it turns out that as you get clearer and wiser and more fulfilled, you realize why you were in art in the first place. That happened to me. I saw what the driving force was that, uh, that I put in a lot of years of education and teaching of, and as wonderful as it is, I saw, it, is, it wasn't my total motivation, but a lot of it. And once that motivation petered out, then, I, did, then I, I didn't need to be there anymore. I was a professor. I'm not putting down the university. Get your degrees, finish, your parents will be happy, your aunts and uncles. <laughs> it's just for me, that's what happened to me. Yes, you had a question? It's not about what, how I respond is irrelevant. How, if, if, what would, how would Dostoevsky respond if he was given a choice of being sane, but he couldn't write his... You know, it's, it's, uh, it's speculative. Right. The, what's really important, please stay close to you. How do you want to live? How do you actually live? Uh, are you willing to... If you're gonna, a very important point, we should, I'm sorry, I skipped it. It's very easy for all meditative practice to get divorced from daily life, even though the biggest cliche in Dharma circles is practice is mindfulness in daily life, and whatever we do, we're mindful, blah, blah, blah. Baloney. It's just uh, uh, because we're not as motivated, we're not as interested. We think the real thing is this. Here or on some other build, in some other place or in the country or in a cave or a forest. And if we don't uh, apply ourselves with the same keen interest and motivation and conviction that it's valuable, that is, if you're in a relationship, uh, is that less valuable in sitting? To me, it's not more or less. They're both expressions of life. Relationship needs to be attended to and learned about just as anything else does. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? But finally, it's your choice. Dostoevsky made his. Please. Yes. But ranking itself, uh, when when you are when you are thinking of yourself positively, is turns out to be good for your health. Yes, better than thinking of you as uh, in a better negative. Than negatively. Yes. yes. Is that the last stop in human development? But what happens when you become? No. Could you stay? No, that's my question. Is that the last stop in human development when you have a positive self-image? No, it isn't. Uh, based, uh, uh, you're getting at it. You, you, your question implies it, really, I think. Okay. 
if, if, if we didn't know, just as the Maasai didn't know that anything would be taller than a giraffe, let's say, or a certain tree, uh, it's not because they're unintelligent or that they aren't lovely people, they obviously are, is that their world is made up, they don't have any World Trade Centers. Okay. And we don't have any encouragement, haven't had, it's coming in now, that there's another dimension to life that's available, accessible. It's not reserved just for special people, the saints, or whoever you think are great yogis. Uh, it's possible for us, at least to some degree. Okay. Um, what, so that let's say you hear a lot of talk about positive self-image versus negative self-image, you're getting it, or low self-esteem versus high self-esteem. And there are therapies, um, affirmations, and so forth, uh, to help you, self-affirmations, to help you improve your image of yourself. If there were nothing else, then great. It's better to have a positive image of yourself than to be, than to have, be down on yourself and um, be full of, of uh, self-pity, and feel like a victim, and because what comes out of that is just self-defeating. It's more people don't want to be with you, or the wrong people are attracted to you. Uh, but now what the Dharma is saying is that that isn't the last stop. Those are images of yourself. We didn't get into their representations of yourself. You know, let's say when you, if you graduate something, it might be a photograph, and then your parents are proud, they enlarge it, and then they mount it on the piano and carry it in a wallet, you know. Is that you? It's a representation of you, okay? Every photograph is. That isn't the Buddha. I, I don't know how to break this to you, but that isn't the Buddha. <laughs> it's a representation of someone's, in someone's head, is that, you know, to, okay. But we're doing it, it's on a much more refined, subtle level. The mind is making up, it's making up representations about who it is to itself. I'm rotten, I'm fantastic. They're ideas, pictures. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's an image-making machine. It's very creative. And so therapies and good common sense is designed to help that machine take you in a direction where you're, where you're more positive, where you have more energy, you have more hope. Do you see what I'm getting at? But that isn't liberation. If there were nothing else, great. But there is more to life than that. See, it's insecure. If you have a notion of yourself as being, I'm okay, if it were stable, that would be one thing, but it isn't. It's quite vulnerable. We get older, and then people, we have, uh, that we've been doing affirmations, I'm wonderful, I'm okay, uh, you're okay, everything's, it's okay not to be okay, you know. Uh, no, that is one, isn't it? I don't make this up. I just get it right from the culture. <laughs> okay. Um, but that has a positive effect on you. Yes. To do that. Yes. Silence. Oh. Oh. The the most profound human healing goes on in the silence. Now that may not make any sense to you. Uh, some of the healing goes on through analysis, through figuring things out, through replacing uh, destructive actions with positive actions. But when, but the silence is the greatest gift there is to the to it's a to the, look in the deepest sense is probably what people mean by God or whatever you whatever language you like. But it's not in words. So is it beneficial? Sure. It's obvious. You know it even if you take look. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. 
those of you who have practiced with just simple breath awareness, let's say on a day when it's, you know, it's humming along and you're starting to feel really calm and clear and thought takes a vacation for a little while and then the sitting, the bell, don't you feel better? Don't you have more energy? A show of hands, please. I need some support here. Thank you. Uh, so you're beginning to see that we're looking for happiness constantly outside of ourselves and in the, the constructions of the mind, including the personality. It's put together by thinking. Pictures and notions and images. But how come we feel so good when that machine takes a rest and we just are? Oh, this is nice. And then it doesn't last long. Well, what if it started to last longer and it turns out not only is it deeper but broader? It seems to, wow. And what meditation is designed to do is to take us in that direction. Please. Um, so when you started out in your talk, you were saying that it was a shame we society had done so well with all these technologic breakthroughs and the great intellectual achievements and such, yet we're real neophytes when we're looking inside ourselves. Uh -huh. The implication might be drawn that the skills are transferable between those two activities. But That's your implication. Exactly. But what you last said um, is contradictory to that, which I think is correct. Or when, I think people make this a highly intellectual process, and really you don't make the leap when it's a highly intellectual process. A leap into what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, but I, I, it probably does have the opposite effect. Let me explain what I meant, because maybe we don't, there isn't a disagreement, and maybe there is. I don't know. Um, what I am saying is uh, tremendous, the, the human being has just so much time and energy, right? Uh, we're on this planet for, at, let's say, 90 years, 60 years. We have a certain amount of hours in the day. Certain. Okay. What I'm saying is it seems like the best energy of the human race has gone into developing certain kinds of things. That means it hasn't been used to develop inwardly. That's all I'm saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. It wouldn't have the effect that you're describing because it doesn't work in the same realm. Um, yes and no. Uh, in other words, the realm... Yeah, I think so. Just tell me what you think. You see, I think what you're inferring, science has a lot of thinking in it. Okay. But science also has a lot of pure observation in it. You have to really pay attention. That's the piece. It's the careful observation of how a human mind actually works. In that sense, it is akin to the scientific mind in that it's interested in, a, in careful observation and seeing this leads to suffering, this doesn't. It's, now, there are thoughts about that, but they're pointing to it. But, what, but the, uh, in this sense, I, you're absolutely right. The real power of meditation is, is not the thoughts, meditative thoughts and Dharma teaching, anything I've said tonight. It's more the pure observation and seeing of it. But I would say that some of the scientific attitude, which is to test life, to try things, uh, that attitude can be, can, uh, is not foreign to this form of spirituality. Does that make sense? It does. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Please. It's interesting that you can come to, people do come to meditation with this fear that I think you mentioned early on that oh, this is going to lead to self-absorption, 
You can. And it, but it really leads you exactly in the opposite direction. Yes. The self-indulgence and the self-absorption are the way things are. Exactly. Most of us, most of the time. That's right. Okay, but you see, the reason that it can also happen in meditation is we bring that same ego into meditation. And then the ego then gets camouflaged as a yogi. And we trick Remember I, yes. Remember I told you the ego is shameless. It says, you want to be a yogi? What do I care? I'll be a yogi. You, you want me to wear a loincloth, eat one meal a day, shave my head? I don't care. You want space? I'll give you space. You want empty? Whatever it is, as long as I'm the star of the show. <laughs> See, in, in us, there's this constant struggle going on, something that wants to be sane and free, and that's moving towards, let's call it emptiness. And there's something in us, I'll call it ego, it's a more familiar term for us, that recognizes where this is going. That's a, it's extinction for it, and it fights it. It doesn't want to let go. All these words it hears about non-attachment, let go, emptiness. You know, I don't want any of that because finally, what you're letting go of is of me. Tisura. So it can be misused, but then that isn't correct practice. There was some other. Please. Sure. Have you found it when just alone with yourself? Surrender. Stop fighting. I see where you're going with it. I, I agree. But here's what might be possible. At least allow for it as being a possibility. Uh, one of the reasons sitting is so important, particularly at the beginning, is that it's a dramatically simplified human invention. Right? When you're sitting, there isn't another person. After all, most of our suffering is with other people. A lot of it, isn't it? Bum relationships, marriage, who does he think is she? You know, uh, what, there'd be no TV, no films if it wasn't for the fact that we're, we're warring with each other all the time. We love it. We love seeing it. The novels are all about that. Every song, I love you, I love you. Um, there would be nothing. Okay. So in the sitting, we, we suspend all of that stuff. No, no relationships, we're not eating, we're not reading, writing, arithmetic, we're not on the telephone, no computers, no war, nothing. So then what is it? You're stuck with yourself, breathing and just being there. And meditation isn't just about breathing, you probably know that. And in, it's, it's your laboratory in a way. It's a simplified universe that enables you to get to see certain things and to develop certain skills. But uh, the art of practice is going back and forth. Uh, uh, it's bringing whatever it is you develop on retreats and so forth, and I'm all for retreats. Much of my life is devoted to it. But if it's at the expense of daily life, which makes up most of our life, it's not going to work. Do you see? Okay, so now we get into, I agree with you, it's much easier to come to that silence alone. Suddenly enters a child, a husband, a wife, a partner, pretty, and how that inner silence. But that, that's what I was getting at. 
um, if you more and more start paying attention in the moment that you have the, let's say this other, whoever it is that's on your mind, who you love, but who can be a pain in the ass sometimes, okay, they come in and you feel the tightening up, you know, sort of, oh no, there they go. Uh, this time, not denying it or putting a smile on your face even though you're feeling that, but awareness with practice can learn, the re your reflexes become much more quick. And you become aware of the reactivity, the tightening up, let's say, and it starts to loosen. And then what it's replaced with is maybe just a little bit more silence so that you then look at this person who's just irritating you. You might be able to then say something to them, but it would be coming from a, a different place than if you're irritated. And then you say, how many times do I have to tell you to blah, blah, blah? It, that doesn't, you know what that brings, right? So you feel that, but you don't, the action doesn't come from it because you're getting to know the reactivity. Uh, you're disempowering it through observation. That's all, clear observation. And then what replaces it is, let's say to begin with, a trace of that silence that you have been tapping. And more and more, the, you see, the silence is always available. It's not limited to a cushion or CIMC. But more and more you become free of special conditions as the practice ripens and matures. That's the whole point. It becomes more and more a way of living, not a technique. So uh, I would encourage you to bring the practice into the morning. You're sitting opposite this person uh, over the table having a cup of tea or coffee and whatever it brings up. That's, you, you liberate yourself from it. You transcend it. You transform it through knowing it. Does that make sense? Exactly. <laughs> Which is kind of horrible in a way. Okay, there, there, so then you're judging that, and you have to see that. In other words, you're, uh, you're down on yourself for doing that. That's, enough, that's a reaction to your reaction. And then you, might, then you heard what I said, and then you have a third, another reaction and say, oh, you don't have to be that way. You know, it's okay. Just forgive yourself. Be it, whatever. And then, you know, but that's, the observation is different. That kind of takes the power out of it, and then there's awareness. Awareness is, is not a construct. It's not put together by thinking. But I want to, is this other person, is it a child or an I, You know, I didn't want to be too presumptuous. Okay. Not a meditator. No, no, it's fine. I know he has, he's spiritual and all that. <laughs> you have to understand, I've been around the block a little bit. I listen to this stuff day in and day out. I know he's a good person, he's compassionate, all that. No, here's what I'm getting at. <laughs> here's what I'm getting at. I'm not down on your husband, I'm sure he's a great guy. Let's say, whoever he is, if you're the meditator and you break the circuit, that is, here's the circuit. He behaves a certain way, you get irritated, so then you behave a certain way uh, coming from the irritation, then he behaves a certain way. To, do you see what I'm getting at? That's like, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So we were all blind and toothless. Okay, but anyway, so this process, okay. Now, he doesn't have to be a meditator. It could be if great if he is, but he doesn't have to be. If you're aware and you break your, your mechanical reactivity, there's a, a different space, and it's amazing what happens as that space becomes more stable. It allows for the possibility, not even with talking about it, for the other person to change. Suddenly, they're doing their same irritable thing, 
and you're, a diff- you're there in a somewhat different way, which then, no guarantees, but it allows for a possibility of something new happening between both of you. Try it, see what happens. One last something or other. See why I like this better than the talks? I mean, this is, to me is much more. Than... Sorry, please. Yeah, first of all, let's distinguish, let's say, clear observation from fixation. A steady mind is not a fixated mind. A fixated mind is not free, right? It's obsessed in a way. A fixated mind is bound to suffer. Observation is just clear and it's pliable and supple. But when you get fixated, actually, you could say that a lot of our meditative work is freeing ourselves from these fixations. Yeah. You can feel it when you're the, the, being the, the stuck quality. You know, you, you understand. I can see you knowing. Okay. One last one, really one truly last one. If there is, please. Um, <coughs> oh, sure. I don't like to make it verses, but I know what you mean. Okay, go ahead. Well, wait a minute. Why, if your teacher is here, you mean in this center, yeah. and you're on a long retreat, can't you uh, learn about yourself without your teacher being present? Why does your teacher have to follow you around? Do you see what I'm getting at? No. Well, are, maybe I don't understand what you're saying. You're saying your teacher is here, and this is happening to you there. So maybe you should be here. What? Right. right. So anyway, the long and the short of it is I ran into some, a certain kind of experience in meditation that made me decide to, well, made me think that it was, um, made me think, or just, I just ended up attenuating my practice, why, my formal wh- practice. Why? Um, See, I haven't been able to make that connection yeah, yet. Yeah, I think it's probably too big of a story to get into. No, but was there something very, very frightening that came? Very, yeah, that's typical. Yeah. Can I respond to that? Uh, Sometimes, see, no form is magic. Uh, I'm not saying that the answer is in long-term residential sitting. It's one very useful form. It's been around for centuries, and it can be helpful. There are times not to do it. There are people who go very, very deeply without doing a lot of that. There are people who sit three-month after three-month after three-month 
and they can only be happy with the, on the on the reservation, as long as they're in the in the, in the confines of a very limited little world, where they just sit and walk, they can be very very happy, and uh, when they get out of that, you don't see any noticeable maturity or or freedom. That's part of why we started CIMC, a large part. I saw it all over the place, where practice can be used to divorce yourself from daily life. It actually can become an escape from relationship, etc. Now, let's say you had a fr very frightening experience, which I understand that one. Uh, it's not like I skipped that one. Um, did you have a teacher, wherever this was, who could help you? Uh, but even so, sometimes the best thing is to pull back from that for a while. The day may come where you want to go back and do some long-term practice yeah, again. Yes. But why is that? Do you know? Um, well, let me ask you the question yeah. and my, my answer. Part of it is that I think that I, I do involve the choice that I have made is I have involved myself very extensively in everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm very um, involved in my career and my life and all these things. I allow them, and it's much easier because, um, I, yeah, I mean, it just has seemed logical for me to do But I wouldn't dream of trying to do right, that. Right, right. And, and moreover, I think my question is the, sort of what, what's in the middle, in, in a manner of speaking. Is there a way where I choose every day to not sit, or I choose to be so tired from flying around all over the world and doing a million other things to, you know, to live my life and do everything else except formal meditation? And, and, and yes, I definitely am probably less calm or less focused or whatever during the peak of my spiritual phase or No. It's a good question for us to end tonight. This is just one person's way of, of seeing things. Not everyone necessarily sees it this way. So you, this is just one view. To me, prior to any of these forms, your CIMCs, your IMSs, your three-month retreats, two-week, six-week, all of that is life itself. That's, the others are a, a kind of inventions that have come along. Let's say if you're what you really want is sanity, liberation, freedom. You want a uh, fulfillment uh, of human potential to flower as a human being. Whether the language is compassion and wisdom, whatever language you like. Okay. It isn't in any particular form. Certain forms have proven to be helpful, but it's always an individual matter. There isn't one size fits all. And part of what is a problem is that, that, that it, it gets conceived of that way. Uh, that, to me, is not the most skillful or sensitive teaching, uh, where if you just sit enough, okay, then everything will be okay. I haven't seen that to be true. Okay. So then what is it that's even more fundamental than sitting? 
It's, to me, awareness, that is that sensitivity, that uh, interest in being awake, you know, looking and listening, and being willing to learn from what you see and hear. This is, that's what I mean by self-knowing. It's an on, it's in an active, it's in the active present that it goes on. If you join all those activities with the same uh, love, it seems like you, you have a love for Dharma. It comes across even, okay. Uh, it isn't in any form necessarily. And life changes. Uh, some, you may be uh, entering a phase, it sounds like it, where you may start doing more sitting. Okay, that's what, it, I get, that's what I heard you say. Okay, but whether you do it or not, I don't know. You know, you, let's say, and having a teacher who, can, who knows you and who you trust, uh, what is useful for you changes from time to time. There, and so it's not in the form, uh, but it seems to me that what you're saying is there's a little bit of dissatisfaction about how you've been living because although you're getting a lot of fulfillment from being successful, there's something else that you respect that you feel you're not doing as well. You're not giving your best as well. The choice is to, to live life that way, sort of the Dostoevsky method or something, but it would be nice if, in, in a matter of, I mean, I would encapsulate my, my query as a sort of how can I have it both ways kind of question. There's no both ways. But look, you know, again, finally, you have to choose. What do you want? Each, each of us inescapably must. Okay, there's no way around that. I'll give you myself. I'll tell you myself. Um, I would, for many years, I was not married. I was in and out of some relationships, but I was not married. That enabled me to go away on, for months in silence in Asia and here. If I were married with children, I could not have done that. I made a choice. I was involved with someone. It could have gone to marriage. It was heading, and a family, and I'm not against that. Okay, and it was a difficult choice because there came an opportunity to go to Korea and Japan and practice with different teachers for a year. And it was a very difficult choice to say, so that I might lose this person. I did. She married someone else. Uh, I am comfortable with knowing that I can't have everything. I know that. And I made my choice. I now am married. And I can't sit as much. But that doesn't mean I can't practice as much. It's not a matter of, uh, you know, if you do, uh, Ajahn Chah would say, uh, a Thai forest master would say, chickens can sit for hours on end, and they, they don't, they're not necessarily wise. It, it, it's not about how many three, you know, you, you can, let's say, well, I've done 12 three-month retreats, like combat ribbons, you know, Vietnam War, you know, Korean War, uh, Desert Storm, you know, uh, fine, what did you learn during that? I did walking meditation till three in the morning, every morning, I, I only had two hours of sleep. I'm impressed with your determination, all that. Did you get wiser? Or is it just strong will and heroics and your ego now feels terrific? So I, the, it's much more subtle and complex than that. And a good teacher, I consider Narayan a good teacher, of course I would, but uh, is going to work skillfully with you. And if things should change where the time seems right to move a little bit out of your lifestyle and more into possibly even going back to residential retreats, then you will want, you'll be the first to know it. So I don't have a formula for it, but let's assume that you're going to have a busy life. 
Look, I'll tell you. Look, before I got married, I protected every year for two, for many years, two or three months, minimum of two months, where I would just go off by myself and sit. I had friends. I had a cottage near Newburyport. I was left alone. Food was dropped off. Blah blah blah. I can't do that now. I'm married, and I, I have other, you know, and I have, a, and there's a center here. I also didn't want a center, and I avoided it for years. I have a lot of responsibility. I only sit for one month a year. Okay, I say that merely because I'm used to sitting for longer periods of time. But I don't feel uh, deprived or neglected, or um, because I, when I wake up, my real practice is life itself. You know, it's sort of entering into and falling asleep and waking up. And I love to sit, but I have no doubt that sitting is not it. Nothing is. So, what's the new age? Be good to yourself. Forgive yourself. Whatever it is. What you? you be, what is it? Be kind to yourself. I don't know. Could we have a few moments of silence? continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.